guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Melanie. And I'm Kate. And today we are thrilled to have Joe Scott Coe with us. Joe Scott Coe is an associate professor of English composition, literature, and creative writing at Riverside City College. She's also an independent researcher on themes of gender, sexuality, and violence in education and elsewhere. Scott Coe is the author of Teacher at Point Blank and the forthcoming Mass, A Sniper, A Father, and a Priest. Additionally, her first ever portrait of Kathy Leisner Whitman, Listening to Kathy, received a notable listing in Best American Essays. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. One of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests is to talk about an inflection point or a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their careers or personal lives. Would you share a few with us? Sure. I would say um, for me, a big pivot point was between teaching full time as a high school teacher, which I was pretty good at and I liked doing, um, and deciding that I was going to go back and get a second graduate degree and really concentrate on writing and write a book. So that was what my first book kind of emerged from. But I, I realized I needed to take that time. And um, I had always been a writer and a reader, but the caseload being what it was, you know, 180 people every day teaching writing, it's kind of a, it's a big load. So um, that was a turning point for me because it helped me prioritize that. And um, I have a, a good life partner, a good husband, so it made a huge difference um, in being able to do that. So that was a big turning point for me. Amazing. So you're an author. I'm really curious. One of your main stories was about Kathy Leisner. How do you pick your subjects for the stories? How did mm. you pick her, come to be interested in her, and how do you choose the characters you want to give light to? Wow. Kathy found me, which is which is um, really an incredible gift. I mean, if I... if what I tell people, though, is unfortunately, I don't get to meet her. So that's something I always try to remember, so not to romanticize, you know, the fact that you're writing about someone who's dead, even though in a way you're helping them become into three dimensions. But um, I was working on this other writing project for Mass about uh, the Texas sniper and religion and kind of male social groupings and things like that. And I had occasion to meet um, the brother of, the, of his, or one of the brothers of his uh, wife. And uh, we kind of hit it off, and I thought that I had a very specific bandwidth of, of conversation with him about the wedding and just about some very specific memories. I didn't really want to do any more damage or pain. I didn't want to scratch at any wound. But we kind of hit it off, and um, we, had a, we had a couple of other conversations about different things, and it just kind of opened up. And it, it was kind of a convergence of him being ready to talk after 50 years about something that the family had held very close trusting me and then me feeling like you know this is an incredible gift so when I say it was it chose me it was I was very ready because I had been studying this for a long time but um I didn't exactly grab for that you know and uh it's it's kind of a mystery to me and in these situations where you see a story maybe even by accident while you're looking into huh, something yeah. else and you decide it seems like it started out as a shorter essay piece <laughs> yeah. and then it, it clearly has taken a, a turn and taken up much more of your life. <clears throat> yes. How, what makes you decide to go even deeper into these stories and what makes you decide that they just need more space than a shorter essay or think piece? No, that's a great question. I mean, um, my joke answer was going to be that we do the Dante thing, just abandon hope and you just go. <laughs> Um, I was talking about this in the writing workshop a little bit ago, too, that originally I thought that I was going to be uh, writing about the UT Austin cases as one chapter in a collection of essays. Um, and I was writing about the Tucson shooting, uh, the attempt on Gabby Gifford's life, which also killed 
quite a few other people. Um, I was writing about the Brenda Ann Spencer shooting in 1979. I was writing about these kind of stories that had been either either were brand new or had been forgotten. I thought, okay, UT was the first televised. So so um, it just was so big, and it had been told so much. That was the thing that I think I had to learn, was that it had already been told a lot over many, many years. So it was a lot to absorb and then to figure out, oh, wait a second, this is a, this is a piece that's a more journalistic pass, say, at telling Kathy's untold story for the first time versus, um, okay, let me do an academic essay now uh, that it really examines her epistolary history, her, letter, her, her life in letters for an academic um, piece versus, oh, by the way, you're finishing this book, Mass, that's now turned into a monster. It's not a chapter. It's a, it's a whole book. So I think... Um, you have to just pay attention to how things evolve. And, uh, and again, thinking about audience is part of that. Is this for a, a venue like Catapult, which is for a general reader, or is this for a very specialized group of people who are interested in the history of language, and they might be people you would talk to about preserving an archive or something like that. So, so yeah, I think, I think the more you read, the more you kind of learn how to figure those things out, but it, is, it can be tricky, you know, or overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we both read the Kathy story that you had in Catapult. Oh, and yeah. one of the conclusions that I kind of came mm -hmm. to after it was that there were a lot of warning signs there that yes. based on Charles' behavior in his private life with yes. Kathy, that there were some warning signs there and things that maybe should have been given more attention to that would have indicated what was going on by the way yes. that he treated his wife. How can we use that knowledge or look for those in other places to prevent some either prevent something like this from happening or just make sure that those individual incident incidences that are already problematic are being taken care of appropriately? That's a wonderful question because um, if, if he had not killed all these other people, we wouldn't know his name. I probably would have never met his brother-in-law and I wouldn't know Kathy's life. She would be one of thousands of women to whom this happens or intimate partners. You, know, you don't have to be married. You don't have to be straight, you know. Um, and I think that the big thing that I learned is this question about the warning signs. Learning how to pay attention is one thing, but instead of thinking about it as I'm going to prevent something illegal from happening, it's more how can you be present as a counterweight and how can you say, you know, I'm worried about you to a person so that they know even if they're feeling like it's not time. You know, I think that the average is between five and seven times of someone who is in that kind of a setting would leave before they really leave, yeah. leave and go back and leave and go back. <clears throat> so just making sure that we are thinking thinking as first responders, even if, you know, no crime has taken place yet. So being learning how to listen, I think, is really the key. Um, learning how to hear, even when people don't want to talk um, and, and not going, well, you didn't say anything or, well, you know, you never reported it. And again, think about it that time, you know, who would she have called the police in Texas? You know, that the history on domestic violence with law enforcement is not great. So, so um, yeah, it's thinking about how to be a real listener and a real friend. Um, and, and I think that's something that haunts Nelson a lot is that he could see, and yet he's 19. He's not dad. He's not, you know, he doesn't live there with her. So it's tough. And this is something that's very common is knowing and Maybe you know the perpetrator. That's another thing that's, that's been an experience of mine. I don't just know the victim. I know the person who's doing it. That's mind-blowing. What do you do? It's not just about calling the cops. It's not just about thinking about the mass shooting. But like you said, you know, um, what about tomorrow? <laughs> what about Wednesday? You know, and how about making it to next week? So it's, it's very difficult. I think we just don't have, we haven't evolved our approach 
and just to go deeper into your relationship with Kathy and sure. the story, um, you said in a, a recent essay that we can communicate with mutual allies who defy time and space, mm. biology, geography, and technical yeah. standards of worthiness, all in order to lobby for each other's survival, safe passage, and even redemption. And that was a very powerful idea to me, connecting yeah. with allies that you really have never met and will never meet. Yeah. But it's it's not about that. It's yeah. Is it about her, her gender and the fact that she left so many letters behind that you can connect with? What, mm. what makes an ally of, mm. of that level? And do you have others that you've um, mm. developed throughout your career? I think part of this is, you gave me chills right now. <laughs> um, part of this is um, um, my religious tradition. I'm not an active uh, traditional Catholic, but that, that understanding, that idea of these portals of connection and then being an English major and knowing that you may be inspired by or your work may reach someone who you never meet is kind of a weird thing that happens. I know that technology closes that gap to some degree. We can talk to someone millions of miles away. Um, but uh, I think I think if you were asking me, how do you find the ally or how do you know? I, I think that the idea of, of feeling alone is the part that was really drew me because she was a highly functioning person. She had an instinct for survival. Um, I know what it's like to be in a, in a relationship where you kind of know you need to get out and you're not sure how you're going to do that. And this is actually a really unhealthy place for you. It's a really common experience, even if no one kills you. And, uh, and that idea that in these, in these letters, she was writing and finding a voice and that in a way that was, it almost got thrown in the trash. I mean, if you read the article, they were almost thrown away. And I can see why a parent would say, I can't anymore. I, I have to stop. But that her brother saved those and that he wanted me to see them. It's like, I don't know exactly how that happened, but there's an alliance there too. He is kind of an ally for her and then sees some kind of connection with me. And so it was a collaborative thing, you know. Um, I don't know if that is a precise answer, but it's a, I think... Yeah, no, definitely. So <laughs> um, and then one of the other things kind of pivoting a little bit that I found really interesting was your book Teacher at Point Blank focuses on the experience of K through 12 teachers. Yeah. But now that you've held alternative positions in teaching in college, how is that experience different or really mm, similar? That's, that's fantastic. It's the same. Um, the difference is where I work now, the huge difference is caseload difference. And consent. In other words, um, no one's required by law to come to my class. They're coming, you know, because they have a goal in mind or they're trying to get a restart. But the law is not saying I force you to stay here. And maybe there's something else they need to do or work on. And that, that adds tension, you know. And then it's you, you probably were in high schools where someone didn't want to be there. They go sit in a detention room all day. Like, how does that all work? So, so the idea of the most consensual learning environment for me is the most exciting thing. And I, and I really do like also the range of ages at the community college. It's, it's amazing because we get veterans or returning parents and then people who are just out of high school. So it's a nice mix. Have you found similar issues relating to the gender of oh, yeah. other professors compared to how that was kind of the focal point of your book of yes. teaching at Point Blank, those that experience as a woman in the classroom oh, sure. teaching students. Is yeah. there a lot of overlap there? There, There is. I mean, because it's the question of do we see women as default authority figure or where are my Rice Krispie treats, you know? And so if you have to bring bad news or if you have to say, sorry, this is not a passing grade or, or you need to raise your voice in a meeting and then someone repeats what you said three seats down and doesn't give you credit for it. I mean, these are just kind of 
average problems, um, they're a little less fraught because it is um, not a compulsory environment. And you're not quite seen as a parent figure where in the K-12 you really are seen as a surrogate parent. And because it's so pink collar, you're the surrogate mom. Thank you so much for all of that. One of the questions we always like to end on is what is your personal definition of success Mm. and what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? Wow, that's such a great question. (laughs) So today, I think what I would say is uh, it's making a contribution. How can you make a contribution wherever you're at, wherever, whatever field you're working in um, that may outlive you? Something that you don't know where it might lead, but that someone would pick it up at some point and you would be very happy that they did or proud that they did. And um, we have to live in the moment. We have to make a living. We have to do all that. But I would also think about that longer view, that long game of how to make something that would last, outlast you. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And remember to all of our listeners, stay hungry.